Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell. And I'm Rich Verma. Each episode will bring you into the discussion with the most prominent policymakers, artists, journalists, business and thought leaders driving the Indo-Pacific from New Delhi to Tokyo. Uh, and we're thrilled uh, to have with us today my good friend and present company included, one of the smartest men mm-hmm. I've ever had the privilege of working with, former Secretary of Defense Ash Carter. I first worked with Ash as a professor here at the Kennedy School, and I've had the pleasure of serving with him at the Pentagon and in other parts of the U.S. government. He's one of the foremost scholars on physics, medieval history, national defense, and global strategy. Uh, He's a terrific guy, and he's brought his expertise uh, to a number of critical tasks, not least of which has been uh, how to think about U.S. policy in the Asia-Pacific region. For our listeners, I'm not going to try to read out uh, his entire biography because time would not permit it. But in the end, I encourage all of you to take a look at his career journey. It is truly fascinating. Uh, Secretary Carter's last role in government was as President Obama's last Secretary of Defense, but his career spans academia and government service. He's written over 11 books, more than 100 articles on topics that range from physics to national security to management. Ash, welcome to Tea Leaves. Good to be here with you, Kurt and Rich. So, Ash, I'd like to just get you started, if you could. Um, As Secretary of Defense, you were responsible for uh, global security and issues that impact the United States. I'd be curious if you'd give us a sense of how Asia came to play uh, uh, among this, you know, enormous pressing challenges, and particularly the the balance between ongoing military operations in the Middle East and South Asia and emerging challenges uh, and threats in the Asia-Pacific region? Well, it's a very good question because the, the, the Middle East is a region that s- seems to command your daily attention. Uh, and I spent a fair amount of my time on the war to destroy ISIS, which was necessary in order to protect our people. But I said again and again in speech after speech, and I uh, made this reflected in my own actions and how I spent my time, that the region of the world of greatest consequence for America's future was the Asia Pacific. And the reason for that is it's half of the world's population, half of the world's economy. And so much of America's future is going to be written there. And It also is a region in which people can easily take for granted the peace and stability that has existed for decades there. That is the climate in which the economic miracles of Asia have taken place. That's been good for the United States. It's been terrific for Asia, Uh, but it's not a birthright. It's something that requires a security architecture. Uh, And we take that for granted at our, our peril. So I came into the job, Kurt, as you know, as Secretary of Defense from being the deputy, and before that from being the number three, the Undersecretary for Acquisition Technology and Logistics, where I was not up on the bridge like the secretary, but down in the engine room making the rebalance, which you created more than anyone else. Um, and when I was in those jobs, I began 
the implementation of those. So I had that in my background uh, by the time I became secretary, plus work that you and I had done over decades and the continuing uh, availability of your advice when I was secretary. So I had no problem with it as a, a priority. It, it sometimes was lonely uh, because that was not the case for the rest of Washington and even the rest of the administration. Do you think the um, American people appreciate the importance of Asia, uh, the way you just described it, that it's been hugely impactful for us? And obviously, we've um, you know, been through some tumultuous times there. We have critical alliances there. We have a lot of troops there. But uh, there's fatigue in the United States, and I wonder if that was reflected in the election results. And and are people questioning um, kind of is Asia as important as we all agree that it is? If there's fatigue, uh, I I think it was with other parts of the world. Uh, there's definitely fatigue with the Middle East. There's fatigue with Afghanistan. Now, I, I understand that. On the other hand, my own view in both of those areas, we have to do what we have to do. And that uh, requires some patience. There is fatigue with Europe, uh, even though we need to stand strong against Putin um, because of the belief, uh, sometimes well-grounded, that the Europeans don't do enough for themselves, although they do more than most Americans appreciate. But in general, I don't think there's fatigue with Asia. I think there is a, a, a certain amount it's taken for granted. North Korea is a funny one because it has always been sui generis in Asia. I think all of the countries of the Asia Pacific, including the United States as an Asia Pacific power, treats North Korea as a kind of thing apart. It's not in the Big, big geopolitical and geoeconomic mix that is uh, the Asia Pacific. But with that aside, I think people tend to take for granted, Rich, how things have, have gone. Now, that is coming to an end, I think, not because patience is running out, uh, but because people are beginning to recognize that in China, you have a communist dictatorship. And um, uh, we have never been in a sustained economic relationship with a communist dictatorship. And that requires a different playbook in order to make sure that our uh, companies, our country, our workers, and our friends and allies are not taken advantage by a country that can marshal the economic, the political, uh, and the military in a way that leaders of countries like ours are just not able uh, to do it. Now, that isn't saying I want a, a Cold War with, with China, and something we ought to talk about in this is what should our overall grand strategy be in the Asia uh, Pacific? Uh, and I think that's a definite question. I have definite answers of my own. Um, uh, to that. Um, but I, I think Americans don't pay enough attention to the wellsprings of what's going to be their children's security and prosperity. Uh, on that, Ash, um, so if you look at the last 60 or so years, we, you know, we had a Cold War with the former Soviet Union, and we've now been in a series of hot wars in the Middle East, in uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, and elsewhere. Uh, I think you're right. We, we confront a different kind of challenge in China, and it is one that um, uh, will affect our children and our grandchildren. 
Um, you had a unique perch at the Pentagon uh, as you observed China's emergence as a military power. Now, for someone who was an absolute expert on uh, Soviet military power, as you observed China, um, how do you see them arriving? Um, what uh, is the uh, fundamental? What are the fundamental aspects of their strategy, and where do they want to go as a military power in Asia? Well, I'll go back in time a little bit, uh, Kurt. I mean, the, the, this this listenership ought to know that uh, I first learned about strategic affairs in Asia from you. Uh, this was in the 1990s. Uh, you had um, uh, done incredibly important work for the Clinton administration. I was trying to educate myself about China. We began, you and I and others, Brent Scowcroft, Bill Perry, and so forth, traveling together to China and also Taiwan uh, and other uh, countries in the region at that time. And if you'll recall then, the uh, Chinese leaders uh, at the time had, I believe it's fair to say, some of the current ideas in the back of their minds, but they n never dared to voice them. The, the ideas that I'm talking about being ones of overweening and domination uh, of the Asia Pacific and not just participation uh, in the Asia Pacific. They tended to stress the participation and they were much more muted in, in ways that current leaders, including Xi Jinping, let alone PLA, are not muted at all. And so I've, in the time that, uh, since I first started to work on it uh, with you uh, 20 years ago, have seen a steady uh, change in the balance between the two strains of Chinese thought. One being we, it's good for us to share in the general peace prosperity of this region and the other which is our moment in history has come it's time to take our rightful place which is the top uh it's time to displace the united states uh intimidate our neighbors uh, that second strain which i think the united states has to counter uh and will have a lot of support in countering in the region not in the way to start a a cold war or anything like that, but simply to stand on principle, that view has been growing and does need to be countered. So the timeline's quite clear. Things that are now commonplace for Chinese spokesmen to say would have been highly breath uh, controversial, taken our breath away 20 years from now. And now they just trip off their lips as though it's perfectly normal and actually uh, self, uh, they're self-appointed. Uh, as the arbiters of the region. That's a dangerous tendency. Ash, how do you, how do you counter it, as you say, we need to, uh, without conflict and your colleague and our friend uh, Graham Allison wrote a book that suggests that conflict may be inevitable. Um, do, you, do you share that view? And it gets back to your question about kind of grand strategy and what are the tools that we are? I, I, I don't using? share the view that's, that, that conflict is inevitable. Uh, it is possible, uh, but it, it 
it, it is in our hands and the Chinese hands and in the it is within the kin of strategy uh, to minimize that probability. Um, I also uh, bridle a little bit at the Peloponnesian War analogy, although I used to use it in my own teaching uh, here at Harvard years ago, uh, because it uh, attributes to Athens a sort of peaceful, just minding their own business kind of rise, <laughs> right. and Sparta was the one that gets spooked. And of course, in this analogy, the United States is Sparta. I don't buy that, that the, the Chinese rise is so passive and that all the fault lies with the United States. I also remind my friend Graham that, uh, and he, that he ought to remind his Chinese friends that war did come and Sparta won. Uh, but I don't want that kind of war. So in terms of what the strategy ought to, ought to be, I'm, I'm quite clear on that. And I used to talk about a network and principle and inclusion. And what I mean by that is a United States that stands for a continuation of the kind of system we've had for 70 years, but not with the United States so clearly at the top as it was after a the wounds of World War II, um, but a participant, an active and strong participant. India, Rich, where you've done such important work, playing a strong role, uh, but one that is uh, uh, founded on principle, economic principle, political principle, and the principle, the the military principles of avoidance of conflict, um, peaceful settlement of resolutions, uh, freedom of navigation, freedom of the skies, and all of those uh, things, and one that is inclusive that doesn't exclude China, uh, and that is the uh, the strategy, and that that I recommend and champion that I found most countries in the region were willing to be part of. They're not willing to be part of a confrontational strategy, and I don't think they should. On the other hand, they're not willing to lie down and be vassals of China either. They want something, an alternative, and this provides uh, such an alternative. Now, there are other ways you can go at this, but I don't approve of them. One is to try to build a block against China. Um, I don't think that would succeed. I don't think that's necessary, but it also wouldn't succeed um, because I don't think most countries in the region want to have to pick between the United States and China. Another possibility would be what we used to call in the Cold War days condominium. And we just say, well, we in China will get together. The Chinese love this idea. That's their idea of a new, new model of superpower relations, which I think is nonsense. And we never should have agreed to that. Our president agreed to that with Xi Jinping. It was a mistake. Um, but that they'd love that, where we deal over the heads of everybody else. We used to constantly tell Moscow during the Cold War that we weren't going to deal over the heads of the Europeans with them exclusively. So, so there are alternatives. Um, but I uh, favor this idea of network and principle and inclusion. And if China chooses to exclude itself... That's on that's their choice. China. It's their choice, yeah. not our choice. So I think that's the right grand strategy, but it needs to be, it is only partly military concept. And Kurt, when he introduced with uh, Secretary Clinton for President Obama, the rebalance concept constantly emphasized that it was not a purely military one. And uh, so I, I always felt that I was quite clear about this strategy. I wasn't always 
uh, clear that those who had the economic and political parts of the U.S. government had the time and attention. They certainly had the background uh, to do the other ingredients of this. And that, to that extent, we may um, have missed some opportunities. I do, I do want to ask you about India because you were really the architect of the modern strategic defense framework. Uh, between the U.S. and India. You were there with the Defense Technology and Trade Initiative, which you created, and then the furtherance and ties. Um, and thankfully, because of you, you know, I landed on two aircraft carriers, one Indian <laughs> and one American. Um, but it was a demonstration of just how far we've come. But you had always reminded us, uh, we don't need a treaty alliance with India to become the closest of partners. And I just wonder how you think through what is what is the modern U.S.-India relationship look like um, as we go ahead? What, what were you trying to achieve? Well, I, 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 I owe a lot uh, of it to you, uh, Rich. You're extremely effective there in putting that in place. Uh, one of the ways of answering your questions is at, to uh, say where it do India, it does India's trajectory and the U.S. trajectory naturally intersect. I used to word, use the word destiny. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the United States and India are destined to, to be friends and partners. We have so much in common. Uh, democracies, large, multicultural, complex, messy. Um, but we have that in common. There's something um, uh, that there's something to the following statistic. I would believe I'm a technologist. I spent a lot of time in the tech industry. About a third of the tech leaders and founders in the United States are Indian or Indian American. Right. There is something cultural uh, that is kindred. I used to say the same thing to uh, Prime Minister Modi when I met with him, as you well, re- well recall. Um, the intersections come in two slightly more specific ways. Uh, the first was the determination of India after its long period of non-lined uh, and a sort of economic um, autarky to uh, become a technological and manufacturing hub in its own right. And the key to me was to link our defense relationship to that domestic mm-hmm. imperative and so that we wouldn't just sell weapons to them, but be a real partner in security broadly, but in also in arming ourselves uh, and to start programs to co-develop and co-produce uh, weapons. The other thing was to take advantage of Prime Minister Modi's, but today's India's desire to move well beyond the old obsession with Pakistan and a little bit on the China side, but really think regionally. Mm-hmm. Uh, Act East was a perfect handshake, as I used to say, with our rebalance. As we headed west, they headed east, and we grasped hands. That was good. They're also actually active in the Indian Ocean as well with their new aircraft carrier um, and so forth. So this is something that is sure to happen. Uh, it's difficult because we all come from a Cold War past in which um, 
we had we had no uh, military technical interaction, so it's a little bit of a square peg in a round hole you run into all the time when you're trying to match us yeah, up. I think but people you forget. I, you and I work through those. People problems. forget we're starting from scratch in a lot of these uh, technical cooperation areas. But I, I do want to ask you. You mentioned the Cold War. I wonder how much Moscow is still a, a kind of critical, either impediment or obstacle to our relationship and and. Is it a matter of just competing now and and saying we got better technology, better military force, better economic partner? I mean, how do you see? Um, well, there's a, a residual embedded base of of Russian and former Soviet hardware there, and they can't. None of us can walk away from the accumulated capital stock of our militaries, you know, overnight. Uh, so they need to buy spares and have maintenance and so forth. And to some extent, no question about it, that has created a counterintelligence issue for us as we sell in. But we always thought we could work through that. And India's record in that regard uh, was extremely good. And I think all those problems can be uh, can be surmounted. And, uh, you know, the best and the newest uh, and the most interoperable will come from us and our friends and, and allies. So Ash, we're, we're sitting in your office. We're on the road for this, uh, uh, session of uh, tea leaves. We're up in your office here uh, at Harvard, a beautiful office adorned with a number of tributes to your service and uh, your contributions. And out the window, it's a lovely sort of late winter, early spring day, snow on the ground. We're in the prestige of Harvard University, and I'm listening to you. And it's hard not to be optimistic and somewhat enthusiastic listening to you. But the storyline in Asia sometimes is quite different. A lot of anxiety about what's going on in the United States. You talked about, in passing, about the messiness of uh, democracies. I think there is a view in some capitals in Asia that it's not just messy, but that we are, in fact, in the midst of a decline. Now, that's been a recurring feature of a lot of commentary in Asia about the United States. We've often proved that wrong. I'm curious just to get you to speak a little bit about um, uh, whether, in fact, uh, rumors of our decline are um, are warranted, or do you continue to have confidence that the United States has what it takes to play a critical role in the 21st century? I have confidence that it can. That's not the same as saying it will. Um, uh, let me start on the military side because that's easier and narrower. I, I, this idea that China is going to... Uh, overtake the United States in comprehensive military power anytime soon, I simply don't buy. Um, uh, we continue to spend a lot more than they do uh, every year, but more importantly, we have for decades. And so our accumulated armamentarium is so much larger that it'll take decades for them to accumulate anything comparable. Second, uh, our military has the operational experience and they're Chinese military essentially has none. That's a huge asset. Um, and uh, last, we have the friends and allies, and they have few or none. So there are huge strengths on our side militarily. 
economically, as I said, uh, there's no question China is going to be a huge market for the United States. I, I look at that as an opportunity for the United States. It's on us if we don't have uh, a system of risk capital, uh, education and training of workers and so forth that takes advantage of that. However, it's also on us if we don't require there to be some sort of even playing field. Now, I don't want to trade war with China, but as we sit here right now, mm -hmm. things are not um, uh, equitable in terms of the United States and China. And the, the President Trump, or whatever he means, I think he's mistaken in when he thinks of trade purely in terms of bilateral balances of trade. Um, but to the extent you can see behind the fog there and understand a, a settled intent, um, the, it, there seems to be an awareness that there's something wrong in that relationship and we need to reset the register uh, a little bit. If that sticks as a political and economic complement to our strategy, I think we can do quite well. I think most of the countries in the region want that to occur. Yeah. They don't want to see an American sunset. Uh, I bristle at that suggestion. Now, of course, the Chinese run around propagandizing that all the time, and they're brilliant at messaging. So every time I know I'd go in a room in any capital, the next, an hour later, the Chinese ambassador would come in, and they're really, really good at this. They're good propagandists. They turn the heads of American statesmen all the time. They come and get retired people over here and fill them up with nonsense. I used to get calls every once in a while from very distinguished former statesmen. And I, and I said, no, why are you telling me this? You must have gotten this from the Chinese. And they said, yeah, I was talking to the Chinese ambassador or something. I said, come on, you've got to, you, you, you've been around a long time. You're not going to get propagandized by the Chinese and call me up with that, are you? So they're very, very artful, a lot more artful than, than, uh, than we are. So I think we need to get in the game, and which is why I wish you guys were still in the game. Uh, and you'll be in the game again, I'm confident, and you remain in it from the outside. And I, I need to say, while I'm talking to both of you, how grateful I am. Both of you are going to be giving lectures uh, up here at Harvard in coming uh, weeks. Uh, we feel real fortunate. And um, uh, I'm, I'm glad to have learned over decades about this region from both of you. Thanks. Well, it's, in, it's incredible. It's an amazing opportunity and, and all these young people up here who get to learn from you. And I just, maybe just one closing question for me, and it's, it's kind of maybe, a, a, a bit of an emotional one. Cause I've seen you land in India in that great, uh, secretary of defense plane. I've seen the helicopter. I've seen you greet the Marine guards at the embassies and consulates. And I just wonder if you could just give people a, a snapshot into Obviously, I saw that in India, but you did that all around the world in dozens and dozens of countries. What What is that like for you um, emotionally? What is that like for you as an American? Um, and and is it part of why you're so confident uh, about our place oh, it in is, the world? It is. It yeah. is. It is. Everywhere I go, uh, leaders would say to me, we like working with your people, meaning the troops. Uh, and it's not just because how incredibly competent they are uh, at mil the military art. Uh, but because of what they stand for and how they conduct themselves. Right. And I was always incredibly proud of them. And I, you know, I've done it a long time. I'm off now doing other, other things, but I'll always love the Department of Defense. Um, I'm all in for those kids. There's no other way it can be. Um, they're what 
I and my wife woke up for every morning. Um, you know, it's not a game. It's a deadly serious business. And uh, our citizens get to wake up in the morning and uh, hug their kids and take them to work and get in the car and uh, uh, go to work and, and live their lives and dream their dreams because they're safe. And uh, that wonderful department's job is to deliver that kind of safety, to be that part of that kind of mission with that kind of young people. That's a spectacular honor, but also a spectacular feeling. So I, I think about them all the time. And it's, it, yeah, it's in the rearview mirror of my life uh, now, but it's, it's, um, it, it, it's something that once you've been part of, as both of you uh, have, you remain, uh, you have a feeling of privilege for the rest of your life and t intense loyalty to those kids. Yeah, it's amazing. Ash, thank you. You've been a terrific guest, and we're so grateful to have had the opportunity to sit down with you. We really thank you for your service, all your contributions to our nation, and most recently as Secretary of Defense. And you've really given our listeners a lot to think about in terms of how to consider the defense and security challenges of the Asia-Pacific region going forward. Yeah, and I want to thank you also uh, personally and professionally. I can't tell you what it was like to be an ambassador in Delhi and have the Secretary of Defense kind of pressing you saying, what more are we doing for India? What more are we doing for India? For India, it's, It was a great place to be and you were an amazing leader. Uh, and I want to thank all the listeners for listening. Uh, please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.